Listener Production. Car Sales acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Hey guys, producer Kelsey here doing this very special episode's Vox Pop. I cannot believe it has been a whole year since we started this podcast. So what I want to know is what has been going on in the world of electric vehicles since we first started? We're turning one, can you believe it? And in the fast-moving world of electric vehicles, it is worth kind of looking back on the key moments and seeing if some of the revelations in what's under the bonnet still hold true. I think we have really only just scratched the surface for season one. There are just so many more things to talk about. Like, you know, what is thermal runway? Are those cars safe? Should I get different tyres for my electric vehicle? What type of price are we talking about for those? Even hybrids. What is the go with hybrids? So what do you guys think? Should we come back for a season two? I love Kelsey and I think she might be onto something here, Rusty. I don't want to spill the beans too soon, but these ideas might already be on the whiteboard for season two. G'day everybody, Greg Rust and Nadine Armstrong with you for a milestone edition of The Pod, something very special. Thank you for coming on the ride with us. Thank you very, very much. We are indebted to you. Our debut year has been so much fun, lots of great learning, and there is really positive stuff happening around the podcast thanks to you. We actually had a record month in June, and in some ways... We are just getting started with this baby. So can't do it without a co-driver. Nadine, hello, welcome, g'day. Rusty, happy first birthday. Yeah, exactly. What have you been driving? Come on. I've had a great range of, a lot of EVs over the last uh, month or so. I uh, had the Porsche Taycan GTS, which oh, I think we've probably chatted it. about. Stop but uh, also the new Hyundai Ioniq 6, which is a, a great vehicle following in the steps of the Ioniq 5, but a little bit different body style, might appeal to a different market. Now, which one appealed with the kids more? Oh, what do you reckon? I reckon the Ionic. No. No? Report- <laughs> well, I know you're a Porsche fan. We're I know a you're a Porsche, Porsche fan. But sometimes <laughs> kids are really drawn to the tech, right? And, I mean, that is a, a very innovative-looking machine, the Ionic. Anyway, we'll talk more about that, no doubt, in Season 2. Have you got a little highlight from the first year of the pod. It's very hard to pick oh, just isn't one, it? isn't We've it? We've <laughs> talked to some great people. I love hearing from the meat and EVs because I think it's just absolutely what this is about, hearing from people who have bought the vehicle and their journey and, you know, the ups and downs. It really has been a learning. Love talking to Stefan Cassell about the sound engineering and the sound of EVs. I think that was fascinating. But I also love, we've had him on a couple of times, Scott Nagar from Hyundai, and he's at the heart of not only a production side of things and the manufacturer side of things with Hyundai, but also, you know, in the government. And that's where we really need to focus. From an industry perspective, for me, Ralph Shields. He got it, we got him on the pod on more than one occasion, I think, didn't we? So, um, you yeah. know, talking about just his pure love of design. He's come from a traditional car background, but what they've been doing over a Jeep in terms of blending EV with the uh, the tough world that some of their four-wheel drive product is known for. Absolutely. That was a really, an, really cool If an chat. icon like Jeep can do it, anyone can. Correct. Now, something that we've heard consistently since we started this podcast from kind of influential industry figures to passionate EVs alike is what action 
is the government taking? So this is a bit of a, a kind of contentious topic, isn't it? It is, you know, but we have had some major developments in this area too. In fact, Labor MP Michelle Ananda Raja will be joining us later to talk about a very exciting announcement that's kind of uniting the whole group of government officials in the push to get electric vehicles in the hands of more people. Vote one, Nadine Armstrong. Progress is her <laughs> middle name. I could see you in Canberra. Uh, our meet and EVA today is a fellow by the name of Gary. He is a long-term listener, first-time caller. Good on you. He DM'd and said, love to come on the show, loves his Kia EV6 so much that he's going to come on and talk about it. Oh, I reckon that's terrific. Oh, fantastic. But first, I want to cast your mind back to the very first episode of What's Under the Bonnet. And the topic? Range, Range anxiety. anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> we actually kind of found out, though, don't you reckon, the more the season went on, it was a much lower level of concern, really, for most of the EV owners that were, and, and drivers that we spoke to. Yeah, it was pretty surprising how small that level of concern actually was mm. for EV drivers. And we've spoken to a lot of them on this podcast. In fact, it seems to be those who are yet to convert to the electric vehicles who have the most anxiety. Agreed. So that's still a hurdle, I know. It's funny, isn't it? It's always that way, isn't it? It's the great unknown, isn't it? So our Meet and EV on that very first episode was Mark Tipping, and he came on and debunked some of the concerns, I guess you could say, around range anxiety because he drove, if you've not heard the episode, you can go back into the library, he drove a Tesla around Australia to some of the most remote parts. So that is right, and we are thrilled to welcome Mark back to the show to catch up on all his latest endeavours and learn about the remarkable progress of his company, Dear Energy, since our last conversation. Mark, welcome to what's, well, welcome back to what's under the bonnet. Now, before we get stuck into Dear Energy, we have to know, you did make a back from the outback, didn't you, in one piece? <laughs> we certainly did, and we went back again. Oh, wow. Oh, so you're we went a back sucker. In November as well. But that time in November, we went through the, um, up to Yindamu and around to Mount Libic and Papunya as well. So we've gone red dirt. That's that's crazy because you and I, we had no sooner recorded the first journey and you and I ran into each other at a hotel in Alice Springs in the, in the centre of Australia. Were there any nervous moments for you on that amazing adventure? I'm going to let you down and say no. Unbelievable. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's just... Jump in, jump in the car and you wake up every morning with 600 k's in the car. So when we're out, ba- out back, you don't want to drive that far anyway. You want to see stuff. Yeah, that's so, so true. If I get stuck, I can go into any mechanic at, at Yindamu, plug the car in for a couple of hours, then keep going. Mm. So I can actually jump quite deep into the, into the outback. Fantastic. We've got you on the show today for, for a different reason, mm. so not our meet in Envia. Tell us a little bit about Adia Energy and where it all started. Adia Energy is an energy storage company, Australian. Um, we build batteries from basically from self-processing all the way to the battery and we use fully Australian software as well. So it's about six years ago, there was, we were, a group of us got together, we were all Tesla owners, and um, we were lamenting the fact that you couldn't buy a Malu Ute anymore. <laughs> but the Aussie Ute, great Aussie Ute, was gone with Holden and Ford. So we got together and decided we'd do something stupid and make our own Ute and uh, went out and bought <laughs> a, a Model S P100D Ludicrous Plus, top of the range, the fastest electric car you could buy with the sole intention of putting a grinder to it and stretching its wheelbase. Oh. We started working on the project. We dismantled the car. We were going off to engineers and we couldn't get any engineer to sign off on individually constructed vehicle certification. So they wanted us to crash test the damn thing. Oh. And it was like, 
I'm building a one-of-a-kind car here. I'm not going to crash test it. We paused the project, but what we'd realised is that while we were doing all this and doing the research, like we went, across, we went out to the Geneva Motor Show and we went off, off and met with Matt A. Remick in Croatia and we're doing all this research and we suddenly realised that the whole world is, is about to change when it comes to energy. Now, I'm a dot-commer by default from years ago and dot-com changed the way the world communicates entirely. Now we've hit dot-energy and the way we generate, store, trade and use energy is changing. I said to Dr. Mark, our co-founder, I said, um, we really need to look at batteries because battery is the solution. And that's actually how we got there because we'd studied so much and we went, we've got to do this. I think there's a real focus on what you're doing around some of the energy needs of remote communities too, isn't there? Delivering solutions to, to areas that might have an unstable or perhaps un, unreliable power grid. That's exactly right. The reason for our outback trips was, in fact, to go and visit the communities and understand what their needs are, not, not having white fellows go and tell the black fellows what to do, but more about sitting down with them and asking them what, what their energy use is like, what are the challenges they're having. And fundamentally, as, as a gross generalisation, stability is the biggest problem. They run on diesel generators. Who maintains those diesel generators can get a bit grey at times, and, and so they're regularly dropping out of power. We looked at um, developing some distributed grid stabilisation solutions. So I can put a solution in, in each house and a plug and play. And then when the power goes out, they've still got their fridge running and their TV running and they can charge their phones. The reason a lot of these places don't have power is the cost of running energy in there. And the moment you put copper wires in, you add a zero on. If you want to run a transmission line, they add two zeros on the back. And I went, well, why don't we just build distributed solutions? So every house has solar. Every house has its battery and every house has lighting, therefore, and communications and the education and health and all the things that energy brings along. So we developed that and, and it all sort of grew from there. And Adia is a, a relatively small Victorian company, but some fairly major headlines see mm. Adia playing a, a pretty huge role in the energy sector. I'm going to read the headline as Adia Energy Science, $161 million defence supply agreement with Australian battery manufacturer Energy Renaissance. Yeah, that's a bit of a coup. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> There's a headline yeah. for you. We've worked with Energy Radiation since they, since they started as well. They started about the same time as us, about a year, year ahead of us. We had an opportunity to develop what's called a 1680 military spec battery. And we got that because of a Korean company called Hanwha Defence, the Australian division. And they're in the running to win Land 400 Phase 3, which is the supply of an infantry fighting vehicle to the Australian Defence Force. We spoke to them about the fact that we wanted, we were going to build and prototype Australian batteries from the mine through to the battery. Hanwha took a leap of faith and contracted us to make those batteries. As a result, we prototyped the batteries. They're going over to Korea for testing. We've got a number of the, the defence primes, so the, the prime contractors coming to us and saying, hang on, Australian industry content, you've got Australian batteries. And as a result, we, supply, we signed the supply agreement with ER and um, which overcame the biggest problem in, in working in batteries, which is supply, it's not demand. Yeah, that sort of leads us, Mark, to the, the pandemic, obviously, and that exposed issues around supply chains, right? And some of those things still obviously are really feeling the pressure in all sorts of areas of industry. Tell us what it means to sort of be able to manage some of those risks and to, and to manufacture locally. Well, the manufacturing locally is wonderful, <laughs> of course. Um, the beautiful part is that we have full control of the supply chain. So, and as, as I often say to people, you know, we're as a nation at risk of 
some hostile parking a battleship in our shipping lanes and stopping us from getting fuel, food, all sorts of things. Whereas you can't park a battleship in the Simpson Desert. <laughs> so, so we're okay from that, that point of view. We've worked with a CSIRO-developed battery management system as well. So all the code's Australian. It's cyber secure. The chipset's designed in Australia as well. And so is the circuit board. So it's, it's a good Aussie product. But it's also um, interestingly competitive with the US and Israeli batteries of the same yeah. specifications in pricing as well. So when people say to you it's too expensive to manufacture in Australia, we've got proof it's not. You just mentioned about the security issue, and it's not really something I had thought much about before, but how important is that to have it secure? You know, and cyber, you know, I don't think about cyber security when I think about batteries. electric batteries. Yeah. No, we're at, um, at look, what's called Land Environment Working Group with Defence a few weeks ago. And one of the major generals there spoke about if you could hack into our, our traffic light system, you could turn all the lights green and cause accidents. And I, I interrupted him. I said, but I can clean that up that night. You know, if we call, you turn all the lights green, it'll cause a problem for a few hours. I've seen the Italian job, by the way. Ah, good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> but, but if you were to hack into our grid-connected batteries, if you had access to those through vulnerabilities or, or malware, you could actually cause those batteries to catch fire and you could take down the entire grid. And that's what people aren't thinking of. And that's why we're pushing very hard for Australian software and cyber skills software because if you want to be hostile, you take out someone's grid and you can walk straight in. What's the, what's the potential here the, from an export point of view to, to upscale, et cetera? We're going through that process at the moment. The potential is, is in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars for exporting. It's, right. it's huge. Australia's in a unique position where we could become the Middle East of the next century with exporting power. We've got so much sun. We've got so much natural resources. Mm. We can do it. And it was only in January, we've been saying this for about five years, but in January we heard our deputy PM say at a conference we're at, it's nation building. You've talked a little bit, you talk quite intimately about your business and I love that. And, but there's a really important commitment to the environmental and social impact behind IDEA. Can you talk a little bit about that? The D Foundation. Mm. So, so because when we started the business, it was never about making money. It was always about making a difference. Hence the work we're doing in the communities and the work that the design of, of the stabilisation solutions. So we've actually got a foundation that we've started and uh, its role, it's an environmental charity. Everything we do is, is renewable. And then it's got the side benefit of, of improving communities, improving health, improving opportunities. And that's really what we, what we drive for. So, yes, we, we have a defence part of the business, but that drives money into the other parts of the business so we can actually do the work that we care about. We've also heard you talk about before how Aussies, you know, small to medium businesses, that they're inventors and innovators. So tell us a little bit about that and some of the learnings that can flow on from that around sort of, you know, protection of IP and so on. When, when we were at Parliament, I, I made the comment that you know, Aussies, we've, we fix fan belts with pantyhose and we <laughs> <laughs> tie rods with fencing wire yes. sort of thing. And so we are, by nature, an innovative group. And, um, and it's, it's that that I, when I was speaking, I, I was saying, this is what we need to look at, what we need to leverage, we need to support. There's thousands of Aussie businesses that have a great idea and it's getting the traction for that great idea to get out that is really important. And, um, and that does lead to... How do you protect your IP? And there's lawyers who <laughs> 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 will speak for hours about this as they <laughs> clock you every six minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, look, IP protection is critical, 
but it's also protecting it in the right way that you can afford to enforce as well. And that's, that's the thing. People talk about patents, but if you haven't got the money to enforce the patent, you've actually just shared your trade secret. It's horses for courses on that one. Before we let you go, um, you've already done another one. I can't believe it in the in the 12 months we've been running anyway, but are you planning another epic vacation or road trip to some remote part of Australia anytime soon? Do we need to yes. cue the Chevy Chase vacation music here? <laughs> <laughs> you probably should, actually, because <laughs> the next one I'm going to do, if it all works out fine, if I can get the time uh, in November, the plan is, so we went to Yindamu, which is 300 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs. That's actually the Tanami track. The Tanami track, then after Tilmouth Well, there are no petrol stations or roadhouses for 830-odd kilometres. And we plan to do the Tanami track. And we'll do it because we can stop at Tilmouth and charge. Halfway is the granite gold mine. So our intent is to pull into the granite gold mine and charge the car there and then continue. So there's, there's, that's my challenge I've set myself. You want to come for a ride? Come along. Sounds like we're going to have Mark back on season two. <laughs> Outstanding, mate. Hey, well done. We look forward to seeing the pictures on uh, on social media when you do that adventure. Keep powering with everything that you're doing. And thanks for coming on What's Under the Bonnet on more than one occasion in this uh, in this first season. As Nadine said, we'd love to get you back on next season. Thanks very much. I'd love to be back. It is time to meet an EVA. Gary is a long-time listener, which we love, but he's also a Kia EV6 driver who knows a thing or two about what it really takes to install an at-home charging system. So, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a long-term listener, so <laughs> happy to be here. We love it. We love it. Let's start at the beginning. What inspired you to make the switch to an EV? Well, I guess I'm a bit of a car nut starting back when I had an old Triumph Spitfire back in the... Um, Ah, awesome. ah, there we go. Awesome. Some cred uh, so straight up. That, but um, I'm not an Elon Musk fan, so that sort of narrowed the narrowed the options down a bit. <laughs> so I love my Kia. How much research did you do on the EV6 and what made you decide that that was the one that you were going to get? When I started looking, I decided I really wanted a car that was an EV from the ground up. I didn't want one that had been converted. I looked at a Polestar and that felt like it was a was an old Volvo with an electric engine. So I really decided I wanted something from the ground up. Narrowed it down to the Hyundai or the Kia. Went and spoke to Mister Hyundai, and he said, "No, no, we we don't we don't take orders. You just got to wait for the raffle to come and hope you win the <laughs> raffle." So I then went to the Kia dealer, and he said, "Oh no, I'll I'll take your money. A thousand dollar deposit." He said, "What one do you want?" And I said, "The all wheel drive one." He said, oh, "Does it come in all wheel drive?" He said, "What colour do you want?" I said, "What colour does it come in?" He said, "No idea." I said, "What's the price?" He said, "No idea." When will it come? I said, no idea. So <laughs> sign I, me up, though. Sign blind me up. faith, I paid my thousand dollars deposit for a car that I didn't know what colour, what price, or when I'd get it. So okay, so tell, tell us that. What did you get? What colour? And when did well, your car arrive? At that stage, when they said, "What colour do you want?" I thought, "Well, if I pick white, there'll be a white one." That was November, best part of two years ago. And come June, they rang me and said, "Well, we've got a red one." So I said, oh, well, a red one will do. <laughs> <laughs> By then we'd seen the red one, so it was, we're happy with that colour. I love that you're loving the EV6. Tell us a little bit about the charging situation. It's something everyone loves to know, that that learning curve around where do you charge, yeah, how often. I, I, I live in an apartment road, apartment just here in St Kilda Road, and the apartment block's 25 years old. There's lots of new ones going up, so we've tried to be competitive with all the other apartment blocks. I should say I'm the chairman of the body corporate, so... I had a bit of a head start, <laughs> but we've been talking about it for a while, whether what we should do. We got Jet Charge to come in and do a report for us, and we've worked the numbers backwards and forwards. We've, we've got 60 apartments, 
90 dedicated bays, so there's no spare bays we could use for dedicating just for EVs. And they came back and the final result was we worked out a solution where for 34 grand, we could build the core infrastructure for the building. And that meant it did all the cabling, did all the load balancing, protected all the other circuits in the building. So we're talking about 30 odd grand between 60 apartments, which is 500 bucks each. So I then sat down with all the owners and said, no one can convince me that your apartment doesn't go up in value by more than 500 bucks if you can do EV charging. That gave the, if you like, the, the base infrastructure for the building. It also did all the billing. So we signed up to ChargeFox. ChargeFox did all the billing for us. So it means when people pull in, they pay for their own charging. That's the base bit. And then for anyone to connect to the base, they have to pay, if you like, the what I call the last mile. So from that infrastructure to their bay and the charger on the wall, that's five grand. That's probably a bit on the high side, but we decided early adopters are happy to pay the five grand. That keeps the 35 grand down. So it got the balance about right. People are generally happy. We've had three or four people already connect up and it's easy. So I'm really happy with it. I think that's great because I know I've heard a lot of people talking about that, particularly people that live in older apartment blocks compared to any new builds. They're already accommodating, you know, EV infrastructure in their car parks or whatever. It is a selling point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing I keep saying to people is it's not like you can stop it happening. If, if you don't do it properly, what'll happen? People will sneak down, put, run a long extension cord out a window. No. You know, they'll do all sorts of crazy things. <laughs> you're not, not going to stop people charging their cars. So people will do it and they'll do it crazily. So we're better off putting a proper infrastructure, proper billing, and it just works. That kind of leads us to recommendations, I guess, to other EV owners that might be listening to the pod who live in apartment blocks to, you know, have that conversion. You've got that, that owner's corporation experience and so on. What I'd recommend people do is they go and talk to people like, whether it's JetCharge or one of their competitors, but build a plan. So that plan only allows us to do 30 of the 90 bays. Mm-hmm. But we said, okay, by the time we get 30 then people will be happy to spend some more money. Build a plan, say, what will it cost to do step A, step B, step C? Different buildings will obviously cost different amounts, but also be reasonably pragmatic by making the the last mile five grand rather than two grand. It kept the, the big number for the body corporate down to 35. So then it was pretty easy. We went to the insurance company and the insurance company said, our premiums won't change. We went to the re- local real estate agents and they all said, oh, people are demanding EV charging now. Each step made it easy. So we know you love your EV6, but we also know that you live in a city. Have you done any bigger road trips? Have you really sort of put that to the challenge? Yeah, I think we've had it just over 12 months. We've done 23,000 k. so we've done plenty of kilometres. We've had a trip to Sydney and a couple of trips to Adelaide. Yeah, awesome. It does take a bit of planning. It does take a bit of thinking. But my wife's got very good with the apps now, and you work out we only go to places that have more than one charger. Mm-hmm. We don't travel Good Friday and Christmas. We're tired, <laughs> so... Yeah, you don't go in the peak hour. Typically, we want to stop every two or three hours anyway. By the time we stop, use the loo, get something to eat, the car's ready to go again. So it really hasn't been a problem. It's not trivial. I mean, a couple of times we've plugged in, you go through the process, it doesn't work, you turn it all off, unplug it, plug it in again, works the second time. You say, well, that's the pain of being the early adopter. It's not a big drama. We've yet to have someone DM us and tell us that they're an unhappy EV conversion <laughs> story, but you clearly are happy with the whole move. And I'm intrigued by that because you began this conversation by talking about a kind of, you know, an earlier or, or pure love of traditional cars, but you weren't afraid to try and to learn and to make the switch. Has it, has it all been worthwhile? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we've still got a, a Peugeot 3008. I was every just going to say, is that, 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 that,
got to go and put petrol in, I've got to fiddle around, I've got to do this. <laughs> and you put your foot down at the lights and think, oh, I haven't, in ge- I haven't put it in gear. Oh, yes, I have put it in gear. It just, <laughs> just hasn't taken off yet. It'll take off soon. The thing that I love is, you know, once a week, you know, Friday or Saturday night, I plug it in, that's it. That's it for the week. You don't have to ever think about it. I never, I never think about what the range is. I never look at it. It's just once a week you plug it in and that's all you do. It's just easy. We're thrilled that you DM'd us and that you were not afraid to come on the show. There you go, everybody. We are gentle. You can do the same. We'd love you. We've spruiked the fact that season two is just around the corner of What's Under the Bonnet. So if you would like to be a guest like Gary, meet an EVA, jump on board, send us a, a direct message via the Car Sales social media platforms, or you can email us podcast at carsales.com.au. Gary, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. No problems at all. News time now on the podcast. First one that caught our attention, Peugeot confirming that the E208, which is their their light car, will come down under. It's coming to the Aussie market in 2024. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. You know, launch timing and the pricing is yet to be confirmed, but I was in the uh, Peugeot 308 recently, Hatch, and it was a pretty good car. So hopefully the uh, E208 is going to be something exciting. They're taking expressions of interest now. It'll join the E208, the small SUV, which is due here, in fact, I think at about three months' time and priced just under 60K. Here's one that you raised the flag on with us. GWM has lowered the price for the Aura electric hatch, and it's a pretty reasonable price, which is what we've been talking about a lot over season one, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, in direct response to their sort of price war with BYD, who are, Mm. you know, one of the other very, very affordable EVs on our market. So they've dropped the price of the Aura not long after it's launched. So you can get into a standard range Aura for $39,990. So that's $4,000 less than originally. So it's really sort of that price war is hotting up at the right end of the price market. How come you didn't do your full big like advertising? So standard range thirty nine nine ninety. Don't miss it. Uh, now that price war, <laughs> that price war, in fact, is between BYD and MG. Really, isn't it? Big one when you look at the FCAI or what we call VFAX figures for the month of June was the manufacturer that finished number two in the top three vehicles for that month. Pretty impressive. Ta-da. It was the Tesla Model Y. It's gaining ground. It outsold the formidable Ford Ranger, who, you know, Aussies absolutely love this vehicle. Number one was a Toyota Hilux, which is still no surprise, but Tesla Model Y coming in at second place, it shows that the appetite, it really well and truly is there. Now, how would you like a new Guinness World Record, a battery EV van has towed over 153 tonnes to enter the record books. A standard production of Echo E Daily was hitched to one of their trucks and a trailer that was on the back of the truck laden with all this earth-moving equipment. Yeah, but it gets better. It gets better, right? It, it does, driven, doesn't it? Driven, driven by Britain's strongest man, <laughs> the, the 140-kilowatt rear-wheel drive with 400 newton metres of torque that towed over 100 feet of runway. I mean, that, that's one hell of a story there. Well, you, you and I were blown away, I think, back in, um, back in, I mean, you've been around motoring for a long time now, but the, but the previous record was actually set back in 2018 right here in Australia and it was a Tesla Model X and it towed a Qantas 787 Dreamliner. Massive. Yeah, I remember that vision. It was quite quite um, 
impressive. Very. A couple of quick ones to finish here. The new Fisker Ronan EV. This is a an electric super GT. It's been, I think, kind of teased on Henry Fisker's Insta, hasn't it? It looks cool. Yeah, totally. Uh, proper revealed due in August, four-door, five-occupants, triple-motor EV powertrain, an acclaimed 1,000-kilometre range. That's going to be the headline for that one. And one from our buddy Mads, Anthony Mataferrari, who works for <laughs> – Mataferrari is his real name, but we, we've nicknamed him that, haven't we? Uh, who works for car sales, of course. VW look like they're bringing back the Beetle, but kind of electrified to appeal to the youth market. I don't know how I feel about them saying the youth market. I loved a, I loved a Beetle back in the day. You're young oh. at heart. You always oh, have been, haven't you? On. You know what I love about all that news we've just talked about, Rusty? What? We're not talking mainstream. You know, we talked mm. about Peugeot. We talked about Fisker. We talked about different brands. So I love that that conversation is getting much broader. Exactly. Now, just to wrap up that point to that subject of the Beetle, it looks like, I think, from what's dropped so far of the animated film Miraculous, Ladybug and Cat Noir, the movie, that uh, that's where we might see that um, that EV Beetle. So keep an eye on that. Now, between eps, the best place to grab all the latest EV news is right here, our electric vehicle hub. So carsales.com.au forward slash electric. Some of the current stuff that's floating around there that might pique your interest. A recent piece on can you get a secondhand Tesla for 40k. That's worth having a read of. And a few tips around EV insurance too. That's worth having a bit of a bit of a dive into so you you understand what you're up to. Make sure you check out Bruce Newton's BMW iX1 review and our good buddy Toby Hagen, who's been a guest here on the pod very early in the series. He's got the inside line on the seven-seat Kia EV9 SUV. Pricing, specs, road trip info, a whole lot more. It's the Electric Vehicle Hub only on the Car Sales website. Hey, Rusty. Speaking of news, we had a very interesting conversation with Splend CEO Chris King recently, didn't we? yes. Yeah, we sure did. Now, if you're not sure what Splend is, essentially they put the brand new kind of Uber-approved vehicles in the hands of rideshare drivers, okay? So the drivers pay a subscription to use that car, which includes all the ownership costs like insurance and depending on the plan they choose, they can own that car after a certain period of time. It's actually cheaper than financing in a great many of the cases. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a seriously sort of innovative idea. Hmm. And, you know, we're not the only ones that think so. The CEFC, which is the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, has invested $20 million to help Splend double the amount of EVs in fleets to 1,000 by the end of the year. So it's the first time the CEFC has invested in EVs, and I think this is a great way to do it. On that note, um, we caught up with Chris to chat about the announcement. Have a listen here to what he had to say. Well, I think it's huge, Rusty. I think it's also just, it's not just the money. I mean, the money's great, and that's going to help facilitate a number, a significant number of electric vehicles um, to roll out in Australia in a much shorter period. But also having the CFC as a backer, you know, the credentials and the stamp that puts on our business, you know, we are heavily focused on the environmental and social impacts of our product offering and partnering with that organisation initially is going to help us accelerate EV adoption in Australia, but more broadly, significantly accelerate EV adoption over the coming years as well. We've only, what have we got? I think if the numbers I have here are right, we've got over 100,000 rideshare ride vehicles across Australia. But of that, 
only 1% of EVs. So, so tell us what kind of impact a, a switch to greener vehicles can have. I mean, it sounds like a, a, an obvious question to ask, but I mean, taking into account the average number of kilometres that, that a rideshare vehicle travels each year, that's it's pretty important, isn't it? Huge. And look, I think that the pennies dropped uh, as well. I mean, rideshare, you know, transporting people are high kilometre usages in a vehicle compared to a consumer car. So rideshare vehicles do, you know, up to five or six times the amount of kilometres a consumer vehicle does, right? You've got 100,000 in Australia, as you rightly pointed out, 1% EVs, 99% not EVs. But then you lay it on with taxis as well. We look at the overall people moving segment, that's another 20, 25,000 taxis there. And if you add that up, the amount of kilometres that vehicles in Australia, non-EV vehicles are using, are being used to transport people around, that is close to nearly a million consumer vehicles if you normalise it. So you take 120,000 rideshare taxi vehicles, including taxis, to EVs, you're going to save the equivalent of converting a million consumer cars. That means the environmental benefits are huge. I mean, five to six times the amount of emissions. You convert a car, a rideshare vehicle to EV, you're saving you know close to six or seven tonnes of CO2 per vehicle per year. How important do you think it is for rideshare to be sort of, you know, to take stand for that zero emissions mobility, to be a role model even? Oh, I mean, look, we see it as a no-brainer. We see uh, EV adoption in rideshare and other high usage uh, applications should be the first to go. I mean, it's, it's great to get consumers on board and board into EVs, but, you know, they're only doing so many kilometres. You know, the average is around 10,000 kilometres a year. You know, rideshare is sort of 50,000, 60,000 plus and taxis are a little more. So we see, you know, all 100,000 rideshare vehicles and 20,000 taxi vehicles should go to electric vehicles very, very quickly. Um, the economics are there with a little bit of support from the government, but not much. The multiplier effect that has, because obviously lots of people take Ubers and rideshare around, uh, is huge. Mm. So we see it as an absolute no-brainer. We see that more should be done to accelerate high-usage, high-kilometre vehicles going into EVs ASAP and rideshare is an absolute no-brainer and we see Splend leading the charge. Splend is now the largest electric vehicle operator in Australia mm, and wow. that's with you know around 500 vehicles that we've rolled out just in the last six months in Sydney. So that mm. sort of goes to show where, where Australia is as a country, but you know we, we're leading by example, and we'll continue to lead by example. And the CFC facility is going to enable us to double that just over the next six months. But we've got obviously, as you can tell, big market opportunity, uh, and we want to accelerate that even further next year and beyond. It's absolutely cracking innovation, if you ask me, on that one, Nads. Hey. Oh yeah, that's right. I mean, I think they've estimated drivers can save up to a hundred dollars a week on costs. That's including okay. fuel when they switch to an EV and. If you add that up over a year, that's that's pretty big, isn't it? Absolutely, and it staggered me the the amount uh, of those vehicles that aren't currently uh, EVs. And of course, you know the whole decarbonisation piece is is massive. We we can't wait actually to get Chris on again and have a longer conversation, and we'll do that in season two of What's Under the Bonnet and maybe explore this a bit more if it's piqued your interest. If you want to find out more about Splend, head to Splend. .com.au. There's also a UK website for those of you that might be listening in the United Kingdom. Be sure to check that out. Ah, the government, hey? Formidable force in the realm of electric vehicles. Do you remember when in episode nine, I think we kind of dedicated the entire ep 
to discussing policy with the brilliant Dr Gail Broadbent actually came on and enlightened us on the government's role in facilitating this transition. And we've received, haven't we, Nads, numerous kind of queries mm-hmm. and concerns uh, about government policies and, and incentives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people are left a little bit confused sometimes. You know, one of our listeners, Tony, from Episode 7, he was asking, please get someone on to talk about policy. It's confusing. And indeed, Tony, he hit the nail mm. on the head, you know, with this observation. He is not alone. Last year, the government announced the plan to develop a national electric vehicle strategy. Now, you still have until October 31st to provide submissions to their consultation, so it's definitely worth having your say. 100%. More recently, though, another announcement was made. More than 30 federal MPs from across the kind of political spectrum and all over Australia have come together to form the first ever Parliamentary Friends of Electric Vehicles and Future Fuels Transport Group. That sounds like a mouthful, (laughs) but important. Today, co-chair of that group. Dr. Michelle Ananda Raja is here to help us uh, and tell us a little bit more about this. Michelle, welcome to What's Under the Bonnet. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So maybe first we could just kick off and tell us about this Parliamentary Friends group. How did this come about? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it was unexpected. It wasn't on my my radar when I entered Parliament, but I'm really pleased that we have set it up. I have a deep personal interest in electrification. I was ready to buy an EV about two years ago and I went shopping around and there was really nothing on the market, just a couple of models and I test drove them and I didn't like them. So I I basically waited. I waited this out, hoping that something would, would emerge. And I really wanted to be liberated from the irritations of the nozzle. <laughs> I was getting <laughs> That's <laughs> our know. best description yet on this and podcast. And you're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, we're busy people. Every Australian is busy in their lives. And I was getting to a point where, you know, I was juggling work obligations, family obligations, picking up my children after school, dropping them off at various, you know, a million and one activities. And then I would find myself on a cold, rainy night driving around on vapor and Hail Marys. And I just didn't have time to be wasting my time at a Bowser filling up my car. So I was just ready to chuck this all in based on convenience alone. And then I got hit with the bills of maintenance. So my car was probably about six or seven years old, so not really that old. And I was starting to incur costs of four digits and rising. My servicing costs were escalating. When cars started to come onto the market, I, I, I leapt at the opportunity of test driving Honestly, it is liberating. I think it's improved my quality of life. And the other thing I would say also is that my own personal journey has been one of investing in electrification at home. So about 20 years ago, we put in rooftop solar. We then put in three-phase power so that we could, in anticipation of getting an EV, so we could charge up quickly. So now my car basically doesn't cost me anything to charge. Isn't that fantastic? fantastic. And that's the kind of... That's the kind of dream I, I want now for for Austra- millions of Australians. That that leads us on. We love your personal story. That that's terrific. What what about in an objective sense for this group? What what is it that you would like to do that you are doing and and so on? So I think the most important thing is that we want to clear the road of 
barriers to EV uptake. We know that the interest and the demand and the hunger for these vehicles is there. I mean, they're, they're, they're selling like grand final tickets. You know, people are waiting online or maybe I should say Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> oh, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> Still raw. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 that's tough, isn't it? Why am, I, um, why am I picturing you at Parliament with three different computers up trying to get tickets for your kids? Anyway, keep going, please. <laughs> but, 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 but you're hearing stories mm. of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people um, waiting for these small allocations of cars and they're mm. clicking on that button, buy now, buy now, um, but just not getting in. So you, I know that there's a lot of pent-up demand in the community for these vehicles. And what we're trying to do now um, in government is clear the way so that Australians get supply, number one. We want more cars in Australia and they get choice because right now the market has been skewed towards the higher end, more expensive vehicles. But you can see that costs are coming down and we need Australians to get access to the the mid-range vehicles so that we can scale this thing up. It's really important. Obviously, there's a climate imperative as well. You know, we are in a climate emergency and we have to decarbonise transport. If we don't decarbonise transport, then by 2030, transport emissions will actually be our highest source of emissions. You do bring quite a sort of broad perspective from a, an owner, but as, as well, you know, within parliament, you know, it's no secret that sustainability has been a bit of a contentious political topic over the past decade or so. But do you think momentum for EVs is building, you know, within the walls of Parliament House? Oh, absolutely. I was surprised, actually, when we launched the Parliamentary Friends Group of electric vehicles and future fuels, because we don't want to bias it just towards electric vehicles. There may be other fuels that come down the the line, such as hydrogen. We had enormous interest from MPs. We've had about 25 MPs sign up, which is extraordinary for a Parliamentary Friends Group, given the fact that there are so many groups. And they are very much multipartisan. So, independents, coalition members, as well as, of course, Labor members. So I think there's broad interest across the community. And bear in mind, each of those MPs represent um, electorates with 100, 110, 120,000 people. So I think that should give you all an indication that absolutely there is huge interest in, in electric vehicles and we need to get cracking. So, Michelle, submissions are currently open for the National Electric Vehicle Strategy. So, one thing on everyone's lips, right? Fuel efficiency standards. What would you like to see? What would the group like to see happen here and why? Yeah, so fuel efficiency standards are really important. Australia, as you know, has some of the dirtiest fuels in in the world. We're in the company of Russia when it comes to fuel efficiency standards. And that's problematic for lots of reasons. One, it's holding us back from getting zero emission cars. Car manufacturers are simply just not sending us vehicles or their allocations are tiny. The second is um, obviously there's a health problem associated with this. We're breathing in pollution, particulates, carcinogens, which are linked to things like asthma. We're already the asthma capital of the world, dementia and cancer. So we have to clean up our act, absolutely. As part of that, we are very interested in hearing from the public around fuel efficiency standards. And my personal view is that Australia needs to catch up. We need to be best practice. And that means we need to align with the EU, with New Zealand, for example. And people should have a say. You should go to cleanercars.gov.au and put in your submission. These are all read by the minister 
and by the department and they'll be collated and we've committed to bringing in few standards. The question is where does this land? So we really do want to hear from the public. I do love that you talk about that more broadly because you know the switch to EVs is not just about mobility, is it? So there are a lot of factors at play here. Tell me about what other commitments the government have made in the EV space. One of the earliest things we, we enacted was tax breaks for electric vehicles. And that was brought in in November of last year around abolishing import duty for cars below the luxury tax threshold, which is around 84000 and also getting rid of FBT. So that in itself has spurred on sales. So last year, for example, sales were around 3.3% or 3.4% roughly of new cars. In the first half of this year, it's jumped to 7%. So that's, you know, that's a doubling. That alone has been a, a very big deal. But then there's a whole bunch of other things we've brought in. We've got this shared vision with states and territories to really boost the infrastructure to support electric vehicle uptake at scale. And that means we've committed to a national network of over 100 EV chargers every 150 kilometres. That's in collaboration with NRMA. We've got something called the Driving the Nation Fund, which includes that charging infrastructure. It's half a billion dollars. It's a lot of money. And it also includes a hydrogen refueling network. Now, hydrogen, I would describe as a small molecule with big ambitions, right? What that's going to do is actually be incredibly important for, for long, heavy vehicles, I guess, to transport our goods and services around this country. In addition to that, we've also got a commitment at Commonwealth level to uh, flip the Commonwealth fleet to EVs uh, or at least low emission vehicles. And we've got some targets around that. And um, we've committed to a bunch of other things. I mean, all of this stuff is not going to happen by magic. We need people to do this. We need Aussies to do this. So that means we've got to train up people and we've got things like new energy apprenticeships to help along the way. I think it was the Deputy PM that in recent or relatively recent time reflected that Australia has great opportunity here to position itself as a clean energy provider and have the kind of status that oil producing nations currently have in the years to come. So it, it's it's not just opportunity, but but it's helping um, um, voters, um, the general public. I mean, you're, you're, I think you reflected before, you're, you're a mum, you've got children, they're learning about this stuff in school. This is important, isn't it? Absolutely. So when we talk about our future prosperity, it it hinges on us becoming a renewable energy superpower. And that's not just some sort of slogan, all right? Mm. That is something that we can grasp. It's there for us to seize. And you're right. We have unparalleled natural endowment of solar and wind. There is no other continent that is like us when it comes to sun and the wind. And it means that we can power our cars on sunshine. Aussie sunshine. That's fantastic. And it means also that we need to connect these, you know, vast gigascale projects of solar and wind to the grid. Mm. And that's going to take Aussie know-how. So I spend a lot of my time speaking to kids, school kids, and I paint that picture of what that future looks like because it's not going to be you and I necessarily doing this, mm. right? But it's going to be them. Yes. They, and we need them to skill up in those jobs of the future. We're going to need a heck of a lot of EV techs. They're not mechanics. They're mo- they've got a combination of software engineering expertise, um, a bit of mechanical you know, know-how, but they're going to have a range of skills in order to handle high-voltage batteries and do it safely. 
One thing that we hear a lot, that the common theme is that this is just not happening fast enough, EV uptake and all of the other parts that need to support that. Tell us why, why this is really important that we actually start taking action like today. Um, you know what, I, I think, it, it, sure, it, it's, we're starting from, you know, Australia has been a climate laggard, let's face it. And in the course of a year, what a change that year has made. You know, we're actually back on the world stage. We've been brought back into the fold like the prodigal child. So I'm optimistic for Australia. I think we're just warming up and um, this flywheel is starting to turn. And once it, it hits maximum velocity, there's no stopping Australia. And you're already seeing that. The numbers don't lie. We've got currently around 83,000 EVs on the road, but we're going to hit 100,000 this year. That's what the projections say. So we are on that upward um, curve. And Australians are going to see the convenience. And I think actually what will drive this will be economics. Mm. It's going to be economics because you know that once you get an EV, particularly if you can charge it off your rooftop solar, and don't forget one in three homes have now got rooftop solar and that number is just ticking over, right, all the time, then, you know, you save a ton of money. Your running costs are something like $600 a year compared to over $2,200 a year for a um, conventional engine. That alone is a really good incentive, particularly when you've got all this volatility in petrol prices. What I'm loving, though, in this space is that there is just so much supply coming online now. I just learned that the world's largest EV car maker, and it's not the one you think, has just released a model for $38,000. So, you know, those, those numbers are coming right down. And um, yeah, it's exciting. And to be honest, once you keep these cars, I think actually the resale value is going to be very good. I think these cars are going to retain their value mainly because we just can't keep up with the demand globally. Car manufacturers cannot keep up with the demand. We know you love your car. What EV are you driving? <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Um, so many people ask me, but I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm sworn to silence on this. Uh, <laughs> Silent being the operative word there, hey? <laughs> spoken like a, like, you know, a true politician, but very, yeah. very well handled. Very well handled. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we, we know on these programs, it can be difficult at times to, to get access to people um, in your position and, and other members of parliament. We greatly appreciate you taking the time to do this today. This is actually our final episode for season one, but we're very excited about season two. So we look forward to getting perhaps you or even some of your colleagues back on uh, to What's Under the Bonnet at some stage. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is it for this episode and, in fact, season one of What's Under the Bonnet. What a ride it's been. We have some very exciting news. Can we sort of pop the champagne and make a bit of noise here. We're going to be back. Season two of What's Under the Bonnet. Now, I think, they're, I think they're pleased with you. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm under review. Hopefully I'm okay to be <laughs> to be. Yeah, I'll be you. back for season two. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happened to Rusty. Uh, make sure you subscribe or follow, to the po- uh, follow the podcast, I should say, to keep updated as soon as that first episode of season two drops. A massive thank you to our our intrepid producer in Kelsey Menzies who does an amazing job to Tommy Thexton as well uh, who ensured that we were properly plugged in um, and to everybody at Car Sales and the and the team at Listener HQ both of them in our respective headquarters for the passion that they bring to this podcast and especially to my co-driver Nadine Armstrong who has hit it out of the park in season one rather well done you 
back at you, Rusty. Can't wait for a bigger and better season two. Me too. Catch you next time, everybody. Bye for now. Listener.